Um, for those of you who, who are guests or new, my name's Lloyd Shadrach. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. I serve alongside Rob Sweet, uh, who is our lead pastor. And those of you online, I know many joining us online, um, the way we function is we've always functioned in a plurality of, of leadership, and that means plurality, plurality even in the pulpit. And so I know this is maybe strange for some, but we believe not just one voice, but that the word of God coming through multiple voices is, is appropriate, good, and healthy for a church family. So uh, we're, we're, we're two congregations, one church. Rob this morning teaches it, is teaching in Brentwood at a Brentwood congregation. Of course, I'm teaching here, and then we'll flip. And that's how we go through books of the Bible, and we teach them on Sunday morning. So I know those of you who are, this is home, you're going, Lloyd, you say that a lot. We already know you, but a lot of people don't. And so we want to remind them of that. Let's open our Bibles. If you have them with you, please open to the Gospel of Matthew. We're in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, continuing our study through the Sermon on the Mount found in these three chapters. You all, uh, I think I've said this, but I'll say it again. When you, when you look at these three chapters, it's basically... Appropriate to say, here we have the entire Bible condensed down into these three chapters, spoken directly from the mouth of Jesus Christ. It is, as we've described it, the kingdom manifesto. And you go, what do you mean a kingdom manifesto? Well, it, it, we mean this. Uh, for those who have put their trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you are a kingdom citizen. And the Sermon on the Mount is our manifesto. It is our marching orders. These are the commands of the Lord that his expectation is this is how his citizens live right now on this planet. Um, two weeks ago, we, we started a new section, you know, because we've been in here since the fall, taking our break for the Advent season. We started a new section that is chapter six, verses one through 18. Now we're gonna do it in four parts, but that whole section fits into the story of the sermon like this. Just before that, Jesus addresses their misunderstanding of the law. You've heard it said, but I say, that was the part before us. Now we come to this section and he's addressing what we would say is a misapplication of spiritual disciplines. It's a misapplication of the practices of devotion. Uh, he addresses three, giving, prayer, and fasting. These are not random. He addresses these three because the religious leaders of the day had taken those three and made them the end all, the be all of righteousness. Do these three and you're righteous. Now, Jesus doesn't eliminate them. This is what I want us to note. It's not that Jesus says, you know, they, they really mess that up. We need to start three, th let's get three new ones. No, he, he says, when you give, when you pray, and when you fast, the expectation, of course, is Christ's followers continue these practices, but we practice them not as, you, you've, we illustrated this before, not as the tip of the iceberg, because that's just outward behavior, but it matters the rest of the iceberg. In other words, What's your motive for doing these things? And the religious leaders of the day, they just did them. Now, their motive was to be seen by people. And as we walk through these three, we'll note that Jesus is gonna remind us we do these things from a motive that we're seen by God and not by others. Now, two weeks ago, I, I started off two weeks ago with this section on giving. 
Uh, last week, Rob picked up verses five and six, which is the very beginning of prayer. So we're doing prayer in two parts. It was there and, and Rob reminded us, and I hope you'll watch it online if you missed it, because you know if this is context and everything goes together. He says, we're to pray in secret. Don't make a show of your praying like the religious leaders do. Pray like they do and you will get the applause of people. Pray in secret and you get God himself. Now this morning we're moving from, you know, how to pray to what to pray. This, this is, you know what this is. It's the Lord's prayer. You're familiar with it. You've prayed, many of you've prayed it. You, 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 you know the prayer. Um, I can tell you this, I'm not gonna give you any new insight this morning. It's not like I I discovered something no one in 2000 years has seen in this prayer, so you wait for it. No, it's familiar, there's nothing new, but I've had a prayer and I've had this expectation and I will say this, I've actually experienced this because you know teaching at Brentwood and, and then I'm here this week, that in our day and time, and, and you know, you guys, th- these are interesting days, are they not? Let's, you know, let's not shy away from this. Is, there's some craziness going on. And um, in these days, globally, locally, nationally, in our own country, et cetera, um, I've, I've prayed that we would pray this familiar prayer with a different intensity, with a different intention that we'd take the familiar Lord's prayer and pray it with a deep urgency. And I, I, I believe this, pray this prayer and your heart will be changed. Pray this prayer and, and you will not be undone when people around you are just coming unraveled by circumstances. Pray this prayer and you'll be a preserving salt, Jesus said, and you will be a light on a hill. You will, you will give hope to others when you're praying this prayer. Pray this prayer and you will see life's events not as random unfolding of, of events, of political powers getting their way. You, you, you won't see life unfolding like that. You'll step back and you'll go, I see God's sovereign hand working out his purposes and plans for his people, for this planet, for his glory Pray this prayer and hope will rise, I, I assure you. Pray this prayer and fear will, will, will wane, it'll lose its grip. You pray this prayer and joy will begin to settle in a deep, deep place within your heart. So with that, we've got the text. The whole text is not the prayer. So there's, there's two parts we're gonna look at. Here's an, an outline for those of you thinking outline pictures, which I do. Jesus is gonna, uh, he's gonna, frame the problem, that's verses seven and eight, and then he's gonna pray the prayer. So, so here's the way we're gonna think about this, framing the problem, praying the prayer. We've had the text sung over us. Let's take it a verse at a time. Start there in Matthew chapter six, verse seven. Jesus is framing the problem. Notice he says, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do for they think that they will be heard for their many words. One of the first things I want you to notice here is that Jesus, whereas in giving, he was saying, don't do what the scribes and Pharisees do. And in fasting, he's gonna say, don't do what the scribes and Pharisees do. But in praying, he says, don't do what the Gentiles do. Why this switch? Well, Jesus is contrasting 
how those who follow him pray with this is how not to pray. And the, the greatest contrast he could get was to say, don't pray like the Gentiles, i.e. don't pray like those who have no God. You see, the, that's the big contrast here in the praying. And, and, and why does he say that? Because how do the Gentiles pray? Well, in a word, with a lot of words and very little content. That's how they pray. They heap up empty phrases. It's the Greek word batalageo, and it is onomata poetic. It, it's the, you know, the, the bee buzzes, buzz. What does buzz mean? It means buzz. You know, it sounds like what it means, batalageo, babbling. It's just empty words and phrases cast up into the sky. Don't pray like that. You know, for, for, for the Gentiles, for those who don't know God, when they pray to a God, they, 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 they feel that if they, they've got to get a lot of words up. Got to, they got to get God's attention. Hey, you know, they got to do things to get their God's attention such that they could get what they're asking for. I, when I read this, the, the, the picture that came to my mind, you all, and I think many are familiar with, is uh, the, the, the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And some of you are familiar with it. It's 1 Kings 18. Read it when you get a chance. In summary, just quick summary form, you got Elijah and he challenges the prophets of Baal. And he says to them, let's build two altars. You build yours, I'll build mine. And, and, and we'll pray to our God. And whosoever God consumes the sacrifice, he is God. And the prophets of Baal said, okay. So they went first, built an altar, killed a bull, put the bull on the altar, and they began to pray. Now, the text says they started in the morning. They continue to pray to noonday. They're, y'all, they're, they're screaming. They're, they're, they begin to cut themselves. They begin to beat themselves so that, so that God will pay attention to them. And the text itself says in 1 King, as midday passed, they raved, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Why? Why did they get no response? From the heavens. This is not a trick question. I just, just think about it. Why did they not get a response? Because Baal is no God. There, there's no God but God. They were talking to nobody. That's why they heard nothing from heaven. Any, any praying to any God but God is a prayer into emptiness. Regardless, this is so key, regardless of sincerity. Now, Elijah, again, this is why I thought of this story, I think, is because the contrast is just so sharp. Elijah says, kill the bull, kill the bull, put the bull on the altar, put the bull on the altar. Now, cover, pour some water on it. Pour some more. Pour, just pour some more. So, so in other words, Elijah soaks the altar, soaks the bull, such that there's water, there's a moat of water around the altar. And then Elijah prays. Now, now don't miss this. They, they started praying in the morning. They prayed past noonday. I want to pray Elijah's prayer verbatim. Oh Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. End of prayer. 
fire from heaven, licks up the water in the moat, consumes the altar, the bull, all of those things. Contrast, they prayed for hours. Elijah prayed for about 26 seconds. Prayers need not be long and wordy when we pray to God Almighty. Now, verse eight tells us why. Look at verse eight. Do not be like them for, because, here's the reason, your father knows what you need before you ask him. So let's take these two reasons he gives us. Number one, because you're praying to your father. You all know that you know, Lisa and I have three kids. Darden's the oldest, uh, uh, married out of the house. We have two girls, Susan and Sally. Susan's a senior at UT Knoxville. Sally's a sophomore there. So they've had this long Christmas break and last Saturday, they drove back to Knoxville and they got their own separate cars. So it was a Saturday and they were said they're leaving early. Well, I'm up way early on Saturdays and I'm working. And so I said, would you guys come by the office so I could say goodbye? And um, so, so I'm working and you know, here comes the first car, you know, and then 10 minutes later, the next car, cause they kind of travel a little distance, you know, they didn't leave at the same time. But, but I, want you, I want you to know, and I, when I, I get emotional thinking about it, you know, I wanted them to come by because I wanted to say goodbye. I mean, I wanted to say goodbye, but I also wanted to give them something because I've always given them something, you know, when they leave. And can I tell you, they don't have to ask for it because I'm their dad. I delight. It is my joy to give my kids what delights them. They don't have to beg me for it. I want to do it. Y'all, when we pray, we need not be wordy or plead with God or cut ourselves. He's our father who delights to give that which delights us. Secondly, it says that God knows what we need before we ask. Think of Psalm 139 on this one. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Uh, Peterson's The Message elaborates, you know when I leave and when I get back, I'm never out of your sight. Never. From conception to death, there is not a millisecond that God does not see you. And may, now get it like this. It's not like, it's not like me looking at Jay and he's, I see him, but I have a very fuzzy view of everyone else. Understand God, when he looks at you, do you understand all of God is on you and on everyone else at the same? It's an attention that's different than human attention. He knows your need before you ask. So don't pray like the Gentiles. In contrast to empty phrases, pray like this. We're gonna move now into from framing the problem to praying the prayer. Verse nine, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. End of prayer. 
Now, now think about this. The, pro- the prophet Elijah prayed for 26 seconds and fire fell. I'm not, I'm not saying this is exact by any means, but just go with me here. Do you know how long this prayer takes? I mean, I timed it. I did it a couple of times. Just, I'm just telling you about 26 seconds. Now, don't read more into that than you need to other than this. Neither one was very long. And things happened when they were prayed. So here's what I wanna do. I'm gonna take the prayer apart, phrase by phrase. We're gonna put it back together. We'll end by praying it at the very end of our time. So phrase by phrase, we're in verses nine, uh, nine through uh, 13. Our Father in heaven. This is, this is the beginning of all prayer. Exalting God, if I can say it this way, putting, putting God uh, in his rightful place. Our Father in heaven. It's not so much a geographic, it's not a location per se as much as it is. Our Father of all authority. Our Father of all powers. We put God in his rightful place. And when we put God in his rightful place, then we find ourselves in our appropriate place under his authority. And this is the pattern of all prayer all throughout the Bible. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's, it's to sanctify his name, which means to set it apart as holy. A name for a Hebrew person is not just the moniker that identifies them. It is the essence and description of their whole being, of who they are and all that they are. And so we would, we would rephrase this when we say, hallowed be your name. What we're, really, what we're saying is this, our Father of all authority and glory in heaven, make your name known. Reveal yourself, show yourself to be all that you are. Your kingdom come. Now here we pause because I hope you feel some of these tensions in the Lord's prayer because we're gonna get to some stuff in the Lord's prayer, y'all. It's tricky. It's, it's really hard, quite frankly. But here we say, he says, your kingdom come. And, and hopefully we would stop and go, wait a minute. Jesus said the kingdom has come. I mean, we're just reading this and Jesus proclaims in Matthew from beginning to end, the kingdom of God has come, is at hand. So how is it that we pray your kingdom come if it's already here? Now, I wanna suggest that we, we would look at this as, as Hebrew poetry and in Hebrew poetry, they often use parallelism, parallelism such that the first line is interpreted by the second. We take the second line and it helps us understand the first line. Your kingdom Come, what do you mean your kingdom come? Look at the second verse. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's probably more, but at least we can say this. Jesus is clearly saying that the ethics and values of the kingdom of God, don't forget kingdom of God, God's people in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying God's blessing, that the values and ethics of the kingdom become more and more evident and tangible and touchable and seeable right now on planet earth. Your kingdom come, your will be done. It it is, uh, how, how does it happen? Well, in the same way Jesus was incarnate, Christ in us is, Christ in us becomes the expression of the kingdom on the planet, how we live, where we live, work and play. Our values, our actions, our attitudes, expressing and extending that kingdom, your will be done on earth as it is 
in heaven. Just as an aside, I don't know that this is, I'll just say this because I, I think about it in, in, you know, in my own devotional reading, but in my study, I thought, your kingdom come, your will be done as it is in heaven. And I thought, how is God's will done in heaven? If you thought, if you thought of it that way. And I thought, well, when God tells an angel to do something, how, how long does it take the angel to do it? That's, there, that's where I go. I kind of go, your will be done on earth in the same way it's done in heaven. Because in heaven, when God speaks, they, they obey. And certainly that carries over a bit, does it not to us? May we respond with the same attentiveness as the angelic beings in heaven. Well, the first part is God's glory, your name, your kingdom, your will. Second part is our need. Again, this is familiar to most. Give us, forgive us, lead us, deliver us. Here's the pattern of prayer through the whole Bible. Your glory, our need. You don't know how to pray? God's glory, tell him your needs. (laughs) This is a pattern all through. Let's take those phrases apart. Give us this day our daily bread. Uh, We understand this not to just be about bread, literal like dough, bread. It includes that, but it is for all that is needed for our physical well-being. This This is a genuine prayer. Give me all I need today to live, Lord, including food and water and drink, shelter and clothing. And we'll see this later in the sermon. It's a daily request because God is a daily provider. Uh, this, is, this is not how we're used to living. Here's where the rub comes for, for me, for many of us. He says, he says, do this daily. The problem is we are an accumulate, save, secu- surplus, storage kind of people, right? So we shop at Costco. If you, if you shop at Costco, it's like, give me this month, my daily need, you know, and you go buy it. You walk out with those paper towels for a year. Um, and, and it's, but it is, and I'm not saying, it, I'm not saying totally wrong. I'm just going, this is the culture we grow up in. Now, in the, the original audience, they generally did get their food every day. So, so you wake up in the morning, you know, they didn't go to the fridge and open it up and pull out. They, we got to have to have food today. And God will tell, Jesus will tell us later, don't worry about tomorrow, just take today. Unlike most of the world, we, we generally work to get ahead. So most of us will get up tomorrow. And by the way, when I say these things, I'm not dismissing stewardship and having proper savings and management. But I do want us to feel the tension of this. Most of us will get up tomorrow and we will work tomorrow to store up for several days. It's the way it goes. And then we'll do it again the next day. And honestly, you string 30, 40 years of that together. Hopefully you got enough stored and you can stop and go, okay, I've secured my future, right? And it's like, that's not the biblical way. I struggle with that tremendously. He says, give us today our daily bread. We wanna secure our future and, and God says, I've secured it. I've got it. Now, now, you can only have what you need for today and I'll take care of tomorrow. He goes on and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. This is Ephesians 4.32. You know, as you've been forgiven, forgive others. In the same way that God, think about it, as in the same way that God forgives us, then we extend that forgiveness to others. To forgive is, is to release. It's to, the idea is to let go. Um, he's using a, the word debt here is one of the ways we can think about 
forgiveness and our sin. Think about it this way as financially to, to forgive a debt is, is to release the person who legally owes you an amount of money. Uh, it's to let them go, you no longer owe me that. No, but I legally, no, I've forgiven it. I've forgiven the debt. Think of it morally when someone harms you, uh, justice requires punishment for that harm. Someone harms you, then it's not mean for them to be punished, it's just. But forgiveness says, I, I release, you did this to me, I choose to release you from the punishment that is rightly yours. It's, for, it's what God does for us. I wanna say this, and I could talk for a while on this, but I, I struggle with this and perhaps others do. Forgiving is not forgetting. You know, oftentimes, you know, I've struggled a lot with them. I'm trying to forgive them, but I can't forget what they did. Well, separate the two. Because <laughs> you, you, we, we, in, in Christ, we can forgive. And, and we may never forget. I, I have a feeling I've got, as bad as my memory is, I've got things that I'll never forget. But we can choose by the power of the Spirit to extend that forgiveness because that's the forgiveness that we have received. Forgiven in this text is an aorist tense. I say that just to simply say it's not a perfect tense, like it's completed. Therefore, a better translation of this part would, would, would be this, forgive us our debts as we are forgiving our debtors. See, this is ongoing as, as, I'm, as we're forgiving others. And here's where we need to pick up the last two verses. So I'm gonna jump a little here, but we gotta grab the, the last two verses to understand this verse we're talking about. You'll, you'll know it when I read it. Look at verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Now, leave that up there for a minute because I want us to look at that and read it and go, I hope you read it and go, is that saying what it says? Because when we read it and I read it and I go, okay, so I'm not forgiven by God unless I've first forgiven others. I mean, when I read, I don't know if you read it that way, but that's the way I read it. If I just take it the way it says it. And so there's a tension in this verse I want us to wrestle with. And one of the things you wanna do when we come across a passage like this, that's, you know, I would say is kind of unclear is to bring what's clear to the unclear. You come across verses like this that, I mean, this seems to fly in the face of what we know the whole of scripture says about salvation. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. Not, uh, uh, you know, we're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone that we, my forgiveness is based upon the life, death and resurrection of Jesus who did for me what I could never do and satisfied the wrath of God. And I trust Jesus did it for me and I'm forgiven. That is so clear. Therefore, we bring what we know is clear in the scripture to this difficult passage and quite frankly go, that cannot mean that God's forgiveness of us is contingent upon our forgiveness of others. Do you see what I'm saying? This is, this is just biblical, this is, proper hermeneutics, quite frankly, biblical principles of interpretation. So, well, then what, why do you say that? Or what, is it, what does it mean? Well, let's think about what's clear. Not just the gospel, salvation by grace alone, in Christ alone, 
in faith in Christ alone, but it is true, we know that when someone places their faith in Christ, they are a new, Paul says, a new creature, a new creation. They've been given a new heart. You're not who you were. And therefore, those who are born again, who have placed their faith in Christ, who have experienced the forgiveness of God and who, in whom the Holy Spirit indwells, will most certainly forgive, uh, forgive others. It, it can be no other way. A forgiven heart is a forgiving heart in the same way that a flame gives off heat in the same way that water makes wet. And so you're gonna hold these two things. If, if we're living our lives and not forgiving, I think then you have to bear the weight of, have I truly experienced the forgiveness of God? That's okay, you know, maybe you thought you did, but you, you didn't tr trust, you're not fully trusting Christ. You may not be a Christian. Don't get all torqued up or worried about this because you go, gosh, there's people in my life I haven't forgiven. Well, that's a part of sanctification. I mean, it takes time. We, we grow in this, okay? So don't, don't jump ship all of a sudden in that way. Am I making sense here? I wanna be careful how I say this. But at the same time, if you spend a lifetime of unforgiveness, then I, I think it's worth considering, have you truly placed your faith in Christ and been forgiven yourself by God? And I would also hold this as well, um, hold, hold these two things. When we see passages like this, we can recognize there is, there is our relationship with God and, there and, there, and then there is fellowship with God. And we gotta keep these two things distinct. Yes, they're connected. Our relationship with God secured by the life, death and resurrection of Jesus is unbreakable, unchangeable. You become a son or daughter, you are a son or daughter forever. Okay, can't change that. However, our fellowship with God, our experience of intimacy with God, y'all, that can rise and fall in the same way that my fellowship with my children can go through some bumpy spots where we're at odds. We're not, they're not experiencing the heart of their dad, you know? And it may be me not experiencing the heart of my child because the way I'm, I'm in sin. Does that make sense? So it, it, it can be as well that when we choose not to forgive, that we are, we're breaking our fellowship with God and not experiencing the fullness ourselves in our fellowship, but never does that touch our relationship. Am I, am I clear on this? I wanna be so careful here. Okay, now there's still some hard stuff to come. This is what the challenge is. Look at the last phrase, verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I'm telling you guys, I spent hours on, on this verse because there are so many interpretations. And, and, and I'm sure there are many right. They're not, like, like, not like I got the one right one by any means. But when you read this, you say, and lead us not into temptation. Well, we're talking to God and we're saying, God, don't lead me into temptation. And we go, wait a minute. James tells us that God doesn't tempt anyone. God doesn't lead. So, so we say, well, what in the world? How does, well, again, we bring context, we bring the whole scripture, we bring what's clear into what's unclear. Some, get, some address it by saying, and lead us not into temptation. That word temptation is really testing. 
So lead us not into testing. That doesn't, personally, it doesn't resonate for me because I sit back and I go, well, wait, because it seems to me the New Testament is certainly clear that God leads us into testing situations to shape our faith and deepen our faith. So I don't know this, don't, don't lead me to be tested because that's how he shapes Christ in us. So, so how do we unravel the, what seems like a Gordian knot? I, I, I would say this, and I get help on this, y'all. I read a ton. I'm not smart enough to figure it out. I am not gonna be dogmatic on this interpretation, but I'm gonna say it, it for me, it resonates because it's, it's, it's contextually, it fits the context. And biblically, it fits all of biblical theology, I think. So here's one way to get at this. Lord, what, what does this mean? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let me ask you a really simple question. Who in the gospel story is led by God into temptation? Not a trick question. Who? Say it out loud. Jesus, right, Matthew 4, Matthew 4 says this, then Jesus was led by the Spirit, that would be by God, into the wilderness to be tempted by the evil one. Now let's come to our passage. It seems that the same three elements there are right here. We have God leading into temptation and the evil one. Lead us not into evil is, is more literally the evil one. So I go, well, that, wow, that, that seems to bear some weight, you know? So our prayer would, would be that God would not lead us, stick with me, that God would not lead us as he led Jesus into direct confrontation with the devil. Now, Jesus prevailed, right? You and I, one-on-one -on -one with the devil, will not, will never, cannot. And if someone's going, I don't know, I think he can take you. I assure you, you can't. And I say that because our parents couldn't. Adam and Eve, I, don't know, I think they stood the best chance. Well, they, they failed miserably and they perfectly represented us. And so, why would God, why would we pray that God would, would, would not do something that he knows is gonna destroy us? It's kind of like, this is, seems to be at a bit of a conundrum. I wanna say this, perhaps because we need to be reminded that we are incapable and we are foolish to go up directly against the evil one. And we see examples of this, don't we? In the gospel accounts, Peter, in his, in his story, we see it in the, uh, Peter at the end when Peter said, you know, Jesus is going to the cross and Peter says, I'm not, look, I will not leave you. <laughs> and by the way, Matthew says, after Peter said that, the other disciple says, neither will we. And within hours, where were they? They were nowhere to be found. Now, the phrase might it might be prayed along these lines. Father, keep me from ever thinking that I can take on the devil directly. I need you to keep me from such arrogance and spiritual pride. Perhaps this is a way we can look at that last statement. When we put all that back together, here's what you have in the Lord's Prayer. 
we proclaim God's authority and we accept our dependence. Here's the Christian life in two things. We, de- we, we proclaim God's authority and we accept our dependence under his authority. By the way, the, the ending, I know some of you are going, wait a minute, what about for thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forevermore, you know, that, that we all memorize. It's not in the earliest manuscripts. It's, it, that, that phrase is not found in the, the best and earliest manuscripts. That just simply means we, we think it was added by someone who was making copies. Um, and I know some of us are going, oh my gosh, that's my favorite part of the prayer. <laughs> but it, it's not original. And, and, you know, from a human perspective, honestly, if I was a copyist, you know, 1,500 years ago and I wrote this prayer out, I'd be going, lead us not to evil. Oh my gosh, what a bad ending. <laughs> For thine is the key. <laughs> I'd probably add something, um, but that's not how it ends. Okay, how about our application? I want to invite the band to come back up because our application will, will respond in the table and in song and in reciting it. But I'm going to walk us through an application I want you to consider. Um, stick with me, stick with me on this application. Uh, Jesus commands us, pray like this. So this is not me saying, hey, let's think about this. This is, I'm saying, Jesus is commanding us. This is how we pray and pray that. He says, pray this. So may we follow our King's command. Here's how we're gonna pray it as a church. And again, I did this in Brentwood last week and we're picking it up here for our Franklin congregation today. Everybody take out their phone. I know that's a no-no, right? When you're in church, put your phone away. Put your, you know, no, I want you to take out your phone. And I actually want you to go to your phone and I want you to pull up your, your clock app. And I'm gonna invite everyone to take their clock app online. I want you doing this. Guests, visitors, I invite you to do this. You can do, you can do this. And I'd like you to go into your app. And I didn't even know I could do this. I had to do it last week. But go in there and I want you to set an alarm for you to go off at three o'clock this afternoon and three o'clock every day till next Sunday. So there's seven days your alarm's gonna go off at three. And yes, you're ahead of me. The alarm goes off. Yes, my invitation. And I think, you know, Christ commanded us to pray it, but here's how I'm gonna invite us to pray to this church, is to pray the Lord's prayer. The alarm goes off. And so sometime within the next few minutes, my invitation is to you is to, you, is to say, pray the Lord's, just, just the words of the prayer, just pray the Lord's prayer. It'll take you about 26 seconds. Now, um, you know, I've got a week behind me because my phone will go off at three today and it'll be the seventh day my phone's gone off. Can I tell you, my alarm's gone off at three, but it's been in the middle of all kinds of different stuff. And, uh, and I've gotten texts and emails from people along these lines. It has been so good to stop when that thing goes. I go, oh my gosh, this, this. it's been so good to stop and pray the Lord's Prayer. And regardless of the circumstances around me, I'm telling you, your heart shifts and your perspective changes. I know there are some here and some of you online, I get it because I would do this. I would be just like this. I'd be going, that's so tacky. Well, spiritual gimmicks again. I get it. I know there's nothing new on this, but um, if you don't want to do it, don't do it. But if you would, it's something I I would like us to do as a church family. And and I'm going to give you two reasons. Let me give you a couple more reasons. First, the reason, number, number one, why three o'clock? Well, I could have picked any time, y'all. I picked three because as best we can tell, this is when Christ was on the cross. So I'm just trying to get us to a place where you go, this is when Christ is on the cross. And this is where we're gonna, you know, as best we can tell, we're gonna pray at three. So that's three. 
Um, why are we doing it this way? Well, two reasons. Do you know that um, Judaism from ancient times had set times for prayer? Morning, noon, and evening. And do you know when Christianity comes along, the book of Acts, do you know the apostles, they didn't say, you know, they were so legalistic about those prayers. Let's not do that anymore. Do you know what they did? The early church did? They prayed morning, noon, and evening. They, they continued that. I know we don't. It's kind of like we want to get away from all kinds of, you know, hyper liturgical. Is there something there for us, y'all? Is there something there for us to, to, to set a time, not legalistically, but, but as a spiritual sensitivity to go, I'm, I pray at this hour every day. Again, not going legalistic. This is seven days, okay? You have to make it the rest of your life. But I think it's worth doing. So three o'clock, we're praying, a set time. And here's, here's, here's the last reason. Do you notice in the Lord's Prayer, the, there, it, there are no personal pronouns. There is no me, my, or I. Do you think about when you pray the Lord's Prayer? You, you, you know, Jesus didn't say, uh, give me this day my daily bread. He, you know, it's no accident. It's our, it's us. Why? Because the Lord's Prayer and the, the prayer he gave his body is a corporate body prayer. So when I'm praying, forgive us our debts, I'm actually praying for you. And you're actually praying for me. Do you see that? Give us this day our daily bread. I'm actually praying for people in the body that I'm a part of that God would provide for them. And you're actually praying it for me. And so I'm just trying to convince you if I can that it's worth doing because the prayer itself is corporate. It's together. So with that, I hope you have your phone set for 3 p.m. We'll do this seven days. You can go longer if you like. We come to the Lord because of the person and work of Jesus. And so I invite you to take the elements for the Lord's table in your hands now. Take the bread, take the cup. If you didn't get it when you came in the room, just go out back and grab some. Some of you, I know we often walk by and don't get them, but we come to the Lord's table each week. I'm gonna invite you to stand. We're gonna take it together. If you're online, grab your table elements and, and do this with us. Do not, don't turn off the TV. Don't disconnect. Uh, when we're done, we, we, we have a song we sing in response and then we respond with the prayer. So holding the bread and holding the cup, pray with me. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ whose life, death, and resurrection we celebrate in this table. Jesus, there is no kingdom apart from your coming in humility to suffer and die. And so we hold this bread symbolic of your body broken for us. We remember your coming. And we say thank you. Take and eat the bread. And Jesus, through the shedding of your blood, that is through your death, we are released 
from dying the second death, that is, from being separated from the Father. And so in this moment, we hold this cup symbolic of your blood, your blood shed for us. We imagine and see the scars upon your body, the wound in your side, all for us. We give thanks, take and drink. Jesus, our participation in this table not only takes us back to the cross historically, but in taking it, we turn our eyes forward because we are proclaiming that you are coming again. Yes, your kingdom in its fullness to come. And we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Amen.